This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. This is the Mark Madden Unfiltered Podcast from the Bet Rivers Network. Hello again, everybody. I'm Mark Madden. Welcome to the Mark Madden Podcast on the Bet Rivers Podcast Network. Uh, it's a sad day in Pittsburgh sports. We are taping this podcast on the day that Steelers legend Franco Harris passed away at the age of 72. Uh, the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception, of course, is Friday, December 23rd. And uh, Franco's number will be retired on Saturday, Christmas Eve, when the Las Vegas Raiders visit the Steelers for a, a, a game at night on Christmas Eve in sub-zero weather with both teams 6-8. and eight. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to be that well attended, despite the circumstances, namely retiring Franco's number and his death just before. Now, to open today's podcast tongue-in-cheek, I have a top three list. The top three reasons the Immaculate Reception should not have counted. Uh, Number three, Franco trapped the ball. Number two, it bounced directly from Frenchie Fuqua to Franco, which was illegal under the rules at the time. Uh, The ball bouncing between two players on the offensive team directly from Fuqua to Franco. And number one, uh, they would have burned Three Rivers State into the ground because it was an eyesore and like playing on cement, just a horrible uh, artificial turf playing surface. But uh, to be serious for a second, uh, people talk about would the Immaculate Reception have counted if you had all the replay angles today and you had replay review that can overturn plays as you do in today's NFL I don't think it would have. We've all seen all the video, and, and, and there's not much, but we've all seen what video does exist of the Immaculate Reception. And it looks to me like Franco caught the ball clean and like the ball bounced off Jack Tatum, who hit Fuqua when the ball came Fuqua's way. That passed by Terry Bradshaw. And it was Tatum, to my mind and to my vision, that deflected the ball to Franco. So uh, all kidding aside, it... It was not the type of call that could have been overturned. There was no conclusive evidence. Now, that's the one problem with replay in all sports. You can look at replay and slow it down and speed it up until you find the conclusion you want. But uh, it looked like a good touchdown to me. It pissed John Madden off, the Raiders coach, till the day he died, and and that's part of the fun. Uh, I now bring on to the program my co-host, Tom Offerman. Uh, Tom, you're much younger than me. Uh, do you have any emotional connection to the Immaculate Reception at all? 
not a super strong emotional connection, to be honest with you, just born out of the fact that I've been a pretty big Steelers fan my entire life. And if you're going to be a real Steelers fan, you got to know the history of the team, right? Because the team I fell in love with early 2000s, that probably doesn't exist, at least from a historical standpoint. Like it was an easy team to fall in line to root for because of the foundation laid by guys like Mean Joe and Franco Harris. So an emotional connection as far as that's concerned and recognition of how important that play is and how important Franco was to the franchise but I mean, my parents were four years old when the Immaculate Reception happened. I, I wasn't even close to a thought. So no, I I don't look at it as with some fond memories and get moved to tears when I think about it. Well, I was just about to turn 12 the next week when it occurred, and I did not see the play. As I've said on my radio show, the game was blacked out in Pittsburgh because of the NFL rules concerning uh, television at the time. I was listening on a transistor radio when Ken Stabler scored that touchdown to put uh, Oakland ahead 7-6. I smashed the radio to smithereens and had to be told secondhand uh, moments after the Immaculate Reception what exactly had happened. Do you share my opinion that if it's reviewed, it counts? That the video just can, doesn't conclude anything to the contrary? Yes, because the call on the field was a good catch and a touchdown. If the call on the field was that Franco trapped the ball and you had to go to video review to try to overturn that then I don't think they do call it a touchdown in, in hindsight. I think whatever the call on the field was, the you don't have any definitive angles today that you could go back and say, well, that would have been conclusive evidence to overturn that call. It had to stand. If the game's played in Oakland, is the touchdown count? I'm going to say no. Because Urban Legend I'm holds... I'm going to say no. Urban Legend holds the refs called up to the supervisor of officials in the booth. And they were like, don't change it. And asked <laughs> if they had security for them to leave the stadium. And when they were told no, they said... Uh, a touchdown, which I think is more romantic than real. But I do think home crowds, ravenous ones like that, can affect referees. In a situation like that. Yes. In a situation specifically where it's real close and the stadium is at a boiling point. Although, I was talking to Tom McMillan, the retired Penguins executive, who was at that game. And he said that when Franco scored the touchdown, over a third of the stadium had emptied out because they were pissed that Stabler scored to put Oakland ahead. Just like you were when you smashed your radio. But a lot of people now in hindsight like to claim that they were at that game, right? Like if you like, it's almost like 100,000 people have said, oh, I've been at that game. I remember the Immaculate Reception. It was my best game I've ever been at that stadium. And it's like, well, the math doesn't really add up there. It's a lot of hindsight. Oh, I was there. Yeah, it it, it, it is one of those events. And like, it, it's tough to, I mean, I've never seen a, a video of the whole game. I don't know if one exists. Neither have I. Uh, it's just it's just one of those things. It, it happened just long enough ago where there is not a 100% complete account of what happened. And I think that adds to the, the romantic notion. The mystique of it, for sure, yeah. yeah of it. Now, here's some, some, uh, some trivia about that game, Tom. Did you know that was the first Steeler playoff win ever? I did not know that. The Steelers had only made the playoffs once before. And they lost, okay. And they lost, and... It was also, the Immaculate Reception was the first Steelers touchdown in the playoffs ever. <laughs> uh, in, in the prior playoff game, they had lost 21 nothing, and they trailed at the time of the Immaculate Reception uh, 7-6 on two, uh, two Orgerella yeah. field goals. So that was the first Steelers uh, playoff touchdown, first Steelers playoff win. Uh, it's worth noting that it didn't lead to anything immediately because the Steelers lost the very next week to Miami. The perfect the, Dolphins, right? Right, yeah. the perfect Dolphins in the AFC Championship game, which was played at Three Rivers because they didn't give home field according to record. They rotated it between the divisions at the time. 
Wow, that's an odd nugget of history right there. Yeah, exactly. The, the perfect Dolphins had to go on the road to get to the Super Bowl. And the next year, the Steelers didn't win a playoff game. They lost in the first round. So, so you know, it didn't lead any immediately, but here's what it did do. And I, I know this for sure as a kid then. That moment and that win made football number one in Pittsburgh. Up till then, it was the Pirates in baseball. Football just took over the city after that game. And, and there was no turning back. I think Mean Joe Green's the greatest Steeler ever. Do you think the most important Steeler may just be Franco Harris for coming in and establishing them in that winning culture? Like they were, they didn't win until he got there. I won't say that anybody's more important than than Mean Joe Green. Yeah, but but uh, once Franco got there, they stopped losing, and uh, he was an indispensable part of that dynasty. As many good players as they had, there were a few. That had you taken them out of the equation, they would not want as nearly as much. Right. And Franco Harris is definitely one of those. You go one two with those two, pretty much without even uh, thinking Bradshaw. too much about it. Bradshaw, Bradshaw too. Yeah, that's okay. that's the holy trinity from from that right. era. Probably, I don't think you can replace any one of those. And that's not to say you could replace Jack Ham, Jack Lambert, of course. You know, Mel Blunt. But you look at those guys, say, well, you know, maybe you could. Maybe they had enough on defense, <laughs> right. Without any one of those guys, but there was no replacing uh, Mean Joe Green. Terry Bradshaw, or or Franco Harris. Now, I put a poll up, which is uh, getting votes as we speak, on what was the more significant moment in Pittsburgh sports history. Was it the Immaculate Reception or Bill Mazeroski's home run to walk off the 1960 World Series? The Maz home run is winning the vote, and I think should, because that sealed the biggest upset in MLB history. Right. And, 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 it, and it won a world championship on one swing of the bat, that's not to diminish what, what Franco did with the Immaculate Reception, but I think Maz's accomplishment speaks for itself. No, I go with Maz on that poll as well because of the immediacy of him winning a championship from the moment. The second the ball crossed over the outfield wall, the Pirates were the world champions. So I give that the nod. And honestly, like I think the Immaculate Reception in my mind is the best play in Steelers history, but the Ben DeSantonio pass has to be right there nipping at its heels when you or, look at or it. Or the Harrison interception return. Yeah, but the, the, again with that immediacy thing. Like I know they had to stop the Cardinals after Ben completed that pass to Holmes, but it just felt like that was it and the Steelers were going to win the Super Bowl then. Um, there are these two yokels that claim they have the actual ball from the Immaculate Reception. Oh yeah, I've heard about that. Do those. you believe it? No. See, I think there's a lot of lies going around I about the Immaculate Reception. I kind of do believe it. Because their story is too detailed for it to not be true. Okay. And don't forget, we didn't have certificates of authenticity then. We didn't have social media. You couldn't document it as soon as you got the ball with your phone. I think it's probably true, but but if I bought the ball, and I guess it's not for sale anyway, but if I bought the ball, I wouldn't pay like like an Aaron Judge home run ball price because as compared to the Aaron Judge ball, which by the way sold for $1.5 million on auction, when the guy was originally guy offered himself. three million, <laughs> yeah, one point five—that's that's not bad. But uh, but you, there's just no way of knowing with this Franco ball. Yeah, but they also have going for them Franco behind them, right? Was I think Franco was like, oh yeah, that's the ball. Like, and how could he ever know honestly either? But if you have him and his backing, that only just adds to the they authenticity. Probably bought a bunch. That that's all it would have taken. Now, uh, how many people do you think are going to beat this game Saturday? It's at night, Christmas Eve. Sub-zero temperatures, Steelers are 6-8, and eight, Raiders are 6-8. and eight. It is not a fitting setting for retiring Franco's number or uh, you know, wishing him well as he shuffles off the mortal coil. 
I don't know if it'll look as bad as a pit football game on Saturday afternoons, but it's going to be as close as a Steeler game ever has to looking like that in my mind. I was seeing Ed Bouchette post on Twitter a screen grab of one of those secondary market ticket places. Tickets are going for like $19, $20. Like that never happens for the Steelers. There's too many negative elements to outweigh the positivity that is, you know, the Franco Memorial now and the retiring they, they of They should number. have had the game during the day. I don't they know. They should if they not could've... have had it Saturday night. Why? Why not? Oh, you mean the, well? The NFL chose when the Steelers and Raiders. Yeah, but the Steelers could have lobbied. I mean, I think I think it probably has a better chance in the sunlight during the day, don't you? Oh, for sure. Especially with the temperatures dipping down to below zero when no, it comes but, to the but wind I chill. think the Steelers thought, okay, we're going to be a playoff contender. Of, the Raiders too, probably. Yeah, the Raiders will be too. The game's going to be meaningful. You know, get prime time, yada yada, and uh, and but uh, the the informal over under the football writers are banding about is forty five thousand in the stands. I think that may be a bit generous. I think it's going to go under. It's going to be an embarrassing display, I think, as far as the crowd is concerned. I don't, but I don't think it's the Steelers' fault. I just I think there's about, a lot of things going against I don't know about embarrassing, them. Tom. I just think it's a horrible circumstance. Right, exactly. And uh, you know what, what people forget, but, they, but they'll remember next week. The Franco uh, play, the Immaculate Reception, was only eight days before Clemente's plane crashed and he That's died. Right. That was like eight days that totally changed Pittsburgh sports forever. Yeah, one for the better and one for the worse. Crazy. You know what else is sad about this game on, on Saturday night, Tom? The Steelers-Raiders rivalry is to be so heated, and now it just it, it doesn't matter. They don't play often enough for it to matter. Exactly. Uh, I was doing like a little scouting report of the series, and the Raiders lead at 17-13, to 13, and it was honestly surprising to find out they've only played that few games because the way that the teams are talked about and the way that they're— Well, they used to play in the playoffs practically every, every year, year through the 70s. They, there's— in the 70s, they played 11 times. So more than once a year, they averaged playing each other. Uh, and they met in the playoffs all the time, like you said, for games that decided go- who would win the Super Bowl eventually in that era. And you just don't have that anymore. But I will say this. The Raiders kind of own the Steelers lately. Like Six out of the last games have gone in favor of the Raiders. And Derek Carr, in particular, is kind of the Steelers' daddy. Yeah, Derek Carr's a good quarterback. I think he's top 10 or right on the edge of that top 10. Yeah, I, I do too. And uh, The Raiders are weird. They're a good team like on paper. They'll they be have, better next year. They have bones there. Once that, they adjust yeah. to a lot of things like, you know, having relocated the franchise, having brought in a Devontae Adams guys, you know, they'll be much better next year. Yeah, and I think McDaniel's starting to get his, you know, feet under him as far as his second stint as a head coach. They've won four of their last five, so they're finishing hot. Now, can you think of any other signature moments for, for NFL teams to rival the Immaculate Reception? Very few jump readily to mind. Now, Mike Tomlin said that the, the Immaculate Reception is the biggest play in NFL history. I disagree with that because it didn't lead to anything. And it was also a fluky play. It wasn't a play of skill. It was a skill of, of fortune. The gi- uh, a play of fortune. The Giants have the David Tyree helmet catch. I have that on my list, the helmet catch. In the yeah. Super Bowl. And that led to Plexico Burris catching the game-winning touchdown and defeating the undefeated Patriots at the right, time. Right, right. And that was probably more skillful than Franco Harris. A little bit of luck involved, for sure. But to trap luck, that on the helmet like you that. You know what I always think of is San Francisco 49ers, Montana to Dwight Clark. The catch. To beat the Cowboys. And that sent them on their way. Yeah, and that was just a, ba- a plain Jane play when you really think about it. Roll out to the right. Great timing, though. I mean, the ball and Clark got there at the same time. But I'm saying as far as, like, the, wow, he caught that on his helmet or the, wow, he picked that off the turf for Franco Harris. Like, it was a more normal-looking play. There was a Hail Mary that Rodgers hit in a playoff game against the Cardinals, I think, that forced overtime, but they lost the game. So that kind of takes all the luster out of that. The Cardinals came back in overtime. You see a trend here. We tend to remember the lucky plays. I think those are the plays that get elevated towards the stature of greatness because they're just so unique when you look at them. Yeah, in Baltimore, that there was that time Ray Lewis killed that guy. 
Now, uh, what about other Steelers signature moments? Uh, here, here's a, a short list I have. You, you mentioned the Ben pass to Santonio right. to win that Super Bowl. Uh, Randall L. to Heinz Ward to win that Super Bowl. I'm surprised that doesn't get more talked about yes. uh, years later. Uh, some of the Lynn Swan catches in in the Super Bowls. You know what's funny about those, though, Tom, is that he made so many of them, it's tough to pick one out. Right. They're just so great. Yeah, he, he made he made the wonderful generic, almost. Um, Ben's tackle against the Colts. That's the one. Which would have made Jerome Bettison to Bill Buckner. Yep, and that actually might be the one that will be my runner-up to the Immaculate Reception because of how weird that play is, and it has those elements of luck almost involved. Like, they're lucky that Ben was right in the place he was and took the right angle and grabbed his shoestrings of Bob Sanders, so... I'll put that one maybe as my runner-up. What about Harrison's 100-yard interception return? That might be the best overall play just as far as quality and difficultness to pull off, running 100 yards down the field like that. See, I and thought I thought like early on in the pick he would just say F it and fall and over. just be done or get yeah. caught by a Cardinal skill yeah. position player. That was an amazing play. Fitzgerald was trying his ass off to get to him. like uh, He was running out of bounds. I thought that was Brittany Griner. That I was Fitzgerald? How, I could see how you'd mix that up, yeah. Um. Now, uh, I, I want to talk about the current Steelers uh, for a second. Franco Harris, RIP, needless to say. Uh, but uh, what about the two penalties to Deontay and Marcus Allen, you know, the unsportsmanlikes in that game against Carolina that were inexcusable, that was obscured a bit by them winning anyway. But like with the Allen thing, Tomlin kind of brushed it off as his press conference said, I'm not giving you, you the media, your pond of flesh. What'd you make of that? Yeah, that was bizarre. I think that's an easy cut to make. And what's going to be really interesting, Mark, is when Marcus Allen makes the team again next year. When he goes through training camp again with the Steelers and he's another special teams contributor who is this Tomlin buddy that he well, keeps Tomlin around. Tomlin plays favorites. Absolutely. There's no doubt that he plays favorites. He appeared and Marcus in, Allen is one of them. He appeared in one of his Instagram videos after a win, I think, last year. Tomlin was dancing with him. He is one of his favorites. The Deontay Johnson one, it makes you frustrated because Deontay's done a lot of boneheaded things this year, and that's at the very top of the list. But I kind of get it in the sense that I've seen that before. Like I've seen receivers make that mistake and talk crap to a defensive back that they just embarrassed. I have never seen a player go into the opposing team's huddle like that, unprompted almost, and draw a penalty like Marcus I've never Allen seen did. a perceived number one receiver have no touchdowns after 14 games and, and get in somebody's face. Then again, I've never seen a perceived number one receiver have no touchdowns after 14 games, period. One of my favorite conspiracy theories that I've seen on Twitter from the Steelers cultists that will always defend the Steelers no matter what is that Marcus Allen was somehow baited into that situation. Like a coach called him over, and then the Panthers assembled a huddle around him to almost... Yeah, I, I don't think that happened. But well, would Marcus that, Allen, that be amazing if they did do that? Like, hats off to the Panthers for that coordination and practicing that. I, I said sarcasm. Uh, Marcus Allen's a, a dink, too. Like, yes. He's, he's always the guy in the locker room playing the music too loud. He's he the, and, and he plays... You know what he does? He plays songs with, like... N bombs and F bombs in him, so the the media so can't use their sound. The media bites. can't use their sound bites. Yeah, and he does it intentionally, and he's had big blowups with Cam Hayward over it. And Cam Hayward told him to turn the music down, and he said no. I mean, imagine saying that to Troy Polamalu or Mean uh, Joe Green. Mean Joe Green. We well, used to say all the time that Polamalu would make it a point when the media to came turn, to, turn to turn it the down, music off. Turn it yeah. off. And, and Mean Joe Green would just rifle the boombox at the time off the wall sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and then Burt Lawton, the Steelers uh, media relations guy, he had a blow up with. With uh, with uh, Allen too, and he just wouldn't take. You know, he wouldn't turn it down. It's just indicative of and the he culture. Bullies the media, he goes around yep. talking smack the media. I'll tell you what, I'd love to see him do that with me. He's not I the would. quality of player to do that. But then again, I'm never going to go there. So, so well, that that's the point, Tom. He's yeah. the fifty third guy. Exactly. That's an easy cut. 
Is culture a problem with the Steelers? When I say problem, as in costing them wins. It's kind of funny that you asked that question after the conversation we just had. I know it didn't cost them a win, but against a better team, it absolutely costs you a win. And yeah, I think the culture is a big problem. How do you say no to a team captain that tells you to do something? That's the guy that delivers the marching orders and you march. Uh, this is a new age, I get it, where the players feel like they should have more empowerment. And I, it's a good thing in a way, but we can't go too extreme in the other direction where now they just run everything well, and the coach is just a yes man. It's indicative of, like, I, I noticed on my show and on Twitter, people under 30 were, like, supporting Marcus Allen. Yes. Like, he should do what he wants because young people, how old are you, Tom? 28. Well, you know what I'm talking about then. Yeah. Uh, Young people, I live around these people. They're my peers. Young people don't ever think they should have a boss or have to listen to anybody. Uh, I've noticed that divide, and uh, and I think there's probably that same divide in the locker room, too. I, I think a lot of the players probably admire Marcus Allen for being the class bully. And that's it's what, like high school. The, yep. the valedictorians aren't the heroes. They're the it's, nerds. It's the clowns and bullies. And that's kind of what Ben was saying on his way out the door, you know, in a Ben way that didn't exactly take a shot, but he would say things like, you know, once Pounce left and I was here for that last year, I, I felt no connection to the locker room at all. I, I felt like I... Well, it, I it, it, it's what Troy said on my show. He goes, when he came into the locker room as a rookie, he looked around and saw men. When he left, he looked around and all he saw was little boys. And Marcus Allen is, is one of those little boys. By the way, did you see Ben on his podcast said that Pickett should shut down for the rest of the season? No, I didn't see yeah, that. That's, he, like, and that's just dumb. That's I mean, the wrong move if he's cleared to play. Right, if he's cleared to play. I mean, because it's, it's been shown that, you know, when you recover from a concussion, you it's not cumulative. You are at no further risk from previous concussions. Uh, I'm not sure that's 100% true, but I mean, you know, it's football. And if he's cleared to play, he needs snaps more than he needs to be careful. No, absolutely. And he should be playing for the rest of the year if he's cleared to play. He, this season... Ever since Kenny came in, I know they've been able to trick people into thinking that they're kind of contending for a playoff spot, but it's all been about getting Kenny Pickett ready for the 2023 season, the 2024 season, and then finding out, do you have somebody or do you have to pull the plug on him? I don't think they're tricking anybody no more, Tom. I still think they kind of are. I still watch like the NFL Network and their broadcasts, and they put the Steelers in the hunt at 6-8, and eight, and I get that they're mathematically available still, but their tiebreakers are abysmal. Everybody in the AFC has basically beat them, and... They're going to lose to the Raiders. I think you're going to get your payoff on your Tomlin countdown clock this week. Yeah, they're I, going to lose to the I, I Raiders. I kind of like 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 them to beat the Raiders, too. And, I, and they're going to lose at least one more game. Yes, between this one and then the Ravens and Browns to finish it off. Yeah. Is Lamar back yet, though? Not yet, but I think that the timetable that Harbaugh put out, and Harbaugh's a BS artist, too, so who knows if this was true, but he said one to three weeks, that third week would be the Steelers game. Um. I need I need uh, that Cleveland Pittsburgh game could be big massive, for me though Tom right because of the fourth for the North T-shirts that fourth could be in all the on the line rather. it could all be on the line okay let's go to the five guys what do you got for us today today's five guys are actors who portrayed Santa Claus in movies now as we, as we move to the sacred holiday yes of course now our first one is someone that you definitely haven't seen yet and it actually just came out about four weeks ago David Harbor in the movie Violent Night. Mark, you need to see the movie Violent Night. You saw the movie Nobody, right, with Bob Odenkirk? Yeah. Same people produced this movie, made this movie. He plays Santa Claus, and he just is kicking ass Isn't for two and a half hours. Isn't it like a Christmas hours. slasher movie? No, not at all. Terrorists take over the house of a wealthy family, and the daughter calls Santa Claus on the radio, and Santa picks up, and he's like a drunk Santa, like a total badass Santa, and he just comes in and kicks the crap out of these terrorists Who's for two the and a half actor? hours. David Harbour. Have you ever seen The Equalizer with Denzel Washington? No. Okay. You're going to love Violent Night, though. You should watch this movie. John Leguizamo is the heel. He's the, oh, the he's, lead, a good heel. he's the lead terrorist. And the best part, the matriarch of the wealthy family that's taken hostage 
is Beverly D'Angelo. Oh, that's tremendous. perfect casting. Okay, next, who's number four? Jeff Gillen. No one knows who that is. I don't. Better known as the Santa in a Christmas Story, who kicks Ra- Ralphie down the slide. Oh, I hate Christmas. Story. You don't story. like Christmas Story? No, no. Move on. Don't even talk about it. Number three, Tam- Tim Allen, the Santa Claus. Move on. Number two. You don't like Santa Claus Christmas movies? I, I don't do you? like Tim Allen. All right, you're gonna like. I don't this like one. Christmas. What's wrong with Tim Allen? Eh, I hated the show with those three little geeks. What was that? Home three Improvement. Little, oh, uh-huh. That yeah, one. Yeah. I, every time you did that, I want to like punch him in the jaw. All right, you're gonna love these next two then. I'm going to the movie Elf for my runner-up, but I'm not going to Ed I Asner. I hate that, too. Uh, but you got to love... You've seen it, right? Yes. Artie Lang as the gimbal Santa Claus. Oh, that's not bad. That's great, That's not right? bad. That's you not bad. You sit on a throne of lies. That might have been the highlight of that movie. He goes, he goes, I'm fake? How'd you like to be dead? When he's t- yelling at, at Buddy the Elf, and then he swings the pipe at him and breaks all of the like. Because uh, Artie's only capable of playing Artie. Exactly. So they make him play Artie for about five minutes in the movie. In a Santa suit. Yeah, and just kick Will Ferrell's ass for a couple minutes. Yeah, no, no, okay, I'll buy that. Number one, I can, it's Billy Bob Thornton. It's Billy Bob Thornton and Bad yeah. Santa. Did you saw see Bad Santa away. too? No, I never saw this. I never one. saw it. You know why? I don't want to be disappointed. But it's probably a little bit of the same, right? I'm sure you'll be disappointed, but at the same time have a couple laughs and be like, huh. Well, what's great about Billy Bob Thornton and Bad Santa is he, he so brilliantly turns subtle baby face through, and it takes the whole movie. For the kid, yeah. Yeah, yeah but he's so, so slowly and brilliantly... You know, turn and and, and and Mrs. Santa's sister helps him turn babyface too, because she's like a relatively sympathetic character in the context of of shacking up with him. All right, well, I know for the future you're not a big Santa Claus Christmas movie guy. No, I'm not a, a big Christmas guy. You know, I stopped giving Christmas gifts when my, mo- my mother passed in 2006. No Christmas gifts since. I mean, I'm kind of, but sense. I will accept them. I will accept them because of it's a ho- it's a holiday of greed. Tis why the would, season? Why would you couldn't have put it better? Now I got another top three list. Uh, uh, Top three athletes, fifty or older. Okay. Okay. In other words, they had to have competed. Right. You know, at age fifty or older. Number three is is Yarmer Yager because he's still playing. Unbelievable. Not much, but you know, he's playing for that team he owns in check. Wasn't it a case of like a player went down, so he came a from the owner's box? A bunch of players box? were sick. Yeah, it's like there was no ceremony to it. He just said, "I'll put my <laughs> stuff on." You know what I mean? Which is so yags. You know, you'd think there'd be pop and circumstance. He'd be like, "I got to play," <laughs> but he but he really wants to play right. too. Uh, number two, Satchel Paige, the old Negro League pitcher, right. who inexplicably was not inducted into the Pirate uh, Hall of Fame in their first class because he spent a lot of productive years with the Pittsburgh Crawfords. That, that's one that we tend to think of the Homestead Grays as the preeminent Pittsburgh Negro League team. I'm not sure if the Crawfords won more, but they had some unbelievable streak of like four in a row or something like that, and, and Satch pitched for them. Josh Gibson played for both teams. During his career, but Satchel Paige, you know, got to the majors late. Yeah, and he came out of retirement as part of a promotion to pitch for the Kansas City Athletics. At uh, fifty nine years old, through three shutout innings. Because he think about, did you ever see him on video? No. Okay, there's limited on YouTube. You right, know? of course. But he had every pitch in the book. Like he just, you know, he had so much, you know, I, I don't want to call it junk because he was pretty fast in the day, too. I'm sure he threw heat for that time. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about, when you look at the stats from back then, from the Negro Leagues, for one thing, you can't trust him because the stat keeping was so uh, irregular. Right. The second is, a guy like Satchel Page was the big uh, drawing card. So he would pitch like two innings in every game as opposed to going out there and throwing a hard nine. Right. So you can spread them out and have people come every single game. Did you ever the see the, the Bingo Long movie? No. Oh, Bingo Long movie. Uh, Bingo Long and the and, uh, the traveling all-stars of Motor Kings. It's called something like that. It's based on a Negro League barnstorming team. And, and Billy D. Williams basically plays Satchel Page. And it's, <laughs> nice. it's, it's pretty it's good. good. 
It's a pretty good movie. Much better than all those Santa movies. Except for Bad Santa. No, um, yeah, you're right. I'd go with Bad Santa. <laughs> Bad Santa is my only, the only Christmas movie I endorse. Yeah, that makes sense. By far. Until you see Violent Night, trust me. I'm tempted. Uh, number one, Gordy Howe. Yes. Because he would F you up. I don't care about the goals. He scored 20 goals when he was 50 in the NHL. fight at that age. Well, not fight. He, Hit you yeah, hard. Like, like, I love the stories old timers tell about Gordy. Yeah, this one time Gordy elbowed me so hard my teeth came through my cheek. And then everybody laughs. Yeah, one time Gordy cross-checked me put me in the hospital for three weeks. Everybody laughs. He's like those Chuck Norris jokes but for hockey. But Except people mean them. They're like, they're like honored by that. People and, don't mean the Chuck Norris jokes? I met Gordy. I met Gordy a few times, and I and I like Gordy. Even though one time on my twelve fifty show, I put a bounty on his head. He came back. <laughs> and, he came back and played in the IHL like at sixty to you know to do like the, all the different yeah. decades thing. We had the goon from the other team on. I offered him a hundred bucks to take Gordy <laughs> out, and, and he played along, which was tremendous. But but he didn't take Gordy out. But uh, do you think at one point we add Tom Brady to this list? Now that Giselle's out of the picture, you think he's going to go for five more years? No, he's too bad this year. I think he might play one more year. He's not going to hang it up after this year. Yeah, but if he plays a second consecutive bad year, I think he'll hang it up. But I I met Gordy a bunch of times, but I met him when he was like in his 70s, and he would still kill like everybody. (laughs) No question. I was scared to death. Now, honorable mention. Do you know who Bobby Riggs was? No. Bobby Riggs was 55. They had the big tennis match on network TV, The Battle of the Sexes. I'm familiar with that. Bobby Riggs against Billie Jean King. They made a movie about it. Oh, he was the opposite sex that fought that he, played yeah, Billie Jean King. Because he beat Margaret Court, who was actually ranked above Billie Jean King in the rankings of mm-hmm. the day. He beat her in a in a less ballyhooed match, but it got a wide world of sports. So, you know, and then he started talking, you know, sexist and misogynistic, and Billie Jean King had to defend the honor uh, of women, and they played at the Houston Astrodome. 30,000 people plus in live attendance. It's still the biggest crowd ever in this country for tennis for match. Tennis match. And, and she beat him. You know what I mean? Right. But, but Bobby Riggs made so much money from that. But there was there's a rumor years later he threw the match because he, 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 he could cash in more if he bet against himself, which is a 55-year-old grifter. That's the play. Yeah, you would respect that, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. That is Tom Offerman. I'm Mark Madden. This is the Mark Madden Podcast on the Bet Rivers Podcast Network. And as we go into this holiday season... It's important to remember the words that were first published in the Bible. Bet now from anywhere. Catch new episodes of Mark Madden Unfiltered every week. Available on the Bet Rivers Network, betrivers.com, and wherever you find your podcasts.